Thank you. Well, my name is Chad. I'm one of the, the pastors. I'm actually going to get this out of the way. It just seems to be a little higher than normal for me, and I'm not used to that. I'm one of the pastors here at South, and I want you to know I'm glad you're here. And I mean that. I'm glad to see each and every one of you. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 100. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And I want you to know also, if you're visiting with us, our senior pastor, Ross, is on sabbatical. And so for this summer, you're going to be hearing from different voices, primarily pastors and elders here at South Campus. Uh, we've been in the book of Psalms for the months of June and July, and then in August we'll roll out a new series. So before jumping into our psalm, here's how I want to frame it. Does anyone else use post-it notes, or am I the only one that's old-fashioned? I see some, all right, I see some hands, I see some, some chuckles. Okay, what I like about post-it notes is they, they are small, but they are mighty useful at reminding us to do something or instructing us to do something. And you can stick them on all kinds of places. Uh, for example, dishes are dirty. Just stick that one right there on the dishwasher. Uh, or run by Walgreens. That one needs to go right there on the mirror to remind me in the morning. And behind each of these friendly reminders is, is, a, is a message or a story, which you don't need anyone to explain to you because you're a part of that story. It might be your job to in, empty the dishwasher every morning, but for whatever reason, it didn't get run that night, so hence the sticky. Dishes are dirty. Or maybe Walgreens has called you a couple times and said, hey, your prescription is ready. It's time to come get it. Okay, all right, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to go get my prescription. Psalm 100 is our post-it note psalm. It's very short, five verses. But in those five verses, we see instruction for how to worship God. If I were to summarize Psalm 100's instructions, post-it note style, it would simply be worship the Lord with joyful, thankful hearts. I mean, I could probably write that on a sticky note. If I had to change the Lord to God, I would. Worship God with joyful, thankful hearts. That's the sticky note message, the gist that our psalmist is instructing us to do in Psalm 100. But what's the story behind those instructions, behind that message? What's the, the why from our psalmist's perspective? Why are we to worship God with joyful, thankful hearts? So this morning, we're going to look at both of these, the what... Worship the Lord with joyful, thankful hearts. And the why, the story behind that. Why our psalmist is calling us to do this. So Psalm 100 is what we call a psalm of praise. There's lots of different psalms. We're going to talk about a couple of them. But Psalm 100 is a psalm of praise. And its purpose is to call us and motivate us to praise God. To worship Him. To sing His praises with adoration. Some of us this morning don't need any additional motivation to worship God. You're, you're just in a great place in life. And you find yourself naturally thanking Him with joyful hearts, praising His name. If that's you, then great. 
this psalm will simply provide for you some additional reasons why we do that. But there are others among us who are in not such a great place. You might be in a terrible place. And for you, you can take all of the reminders and motivation you can get for why you are to worship God with joyful, thankful hearts. Now, if that's you, if you're in that place, hear me please. I am not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to prod you. I'm not going to try to change your heart for why you shouldn't be where you are and should instead be thankful and joyful. Your hardships are real and so is your pain. My goal this morning is simply this. I want to walk you through Psalm 100. Walk you through this beautiful praise psalm. And I want to show you and explain to you what his message is. And I want to show you and explain to you his story behind that sticky note message. So let's jump into our psalm. And we're going to begin by reading verses 1 and 2. And in verses 1 and 2, what we see here is the psalmist calling all the earth to worship God with joy. So in verses 1 and 2, it's primarily this idea of joy or gladness. So read with me verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve or worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So stop with me there, verses 1 and 2. It's this call, this invitation to worship with joy. The ESV translates that first verse, make a joyful noise to the Lord. But if you were to look at any number of other translations, it's a little more explicit. Uh, they translate it as shout joyfully or shout in triumph. The idea here to shout or to make a joyful noise is that you are glad about something. In fact, you're enthusiastic about something. And when you're enthusiastic, that tends to cause your volume or your, your body language. Something changes in you to shout for joy or to make a joyful noise. You just can't keep it in. Let me give you an example. One of my brothers, he bagged his first bull elk with a bow this past elk season. Now, he's been hunting for 18 years every season, always just with his friends, never with a guide. It's just been him going out into the woods. It's been up to him to, to spot the elk, to stalk the elk, to get close enough to get a good shot on an elk, and then to take it from there. For 18 years, he has been working at bagging a bull elk. And this last season, he finally got one with his bow. And thankfully, one of his hunting party buddies was with him. After the elk dropped, he pulled out his phone and he just asked my brother a very simple question. How do you feel? He didn't answer with words. He just clenched his fists. He looked up at the sky and he just shouted for joy. It was one of the clearest pictures I've ever seen of someone shouting in triumph, shouting with joy because their heart was filled with such gladness. So let me give you another example of make a joyful noise to the Lord or, or shout with joy. A couple of months back, I went with the Bethel Hope campus to Mombasa, Kenya for a mission trip. 
We landed on Sunday morning very early, so we had enough time to change and get ready for church. Now, we wanted to go to church for a couple of reasons. One, we just wanted to worship, but two, we wanted to expose the team to the, the cultural style of worship in Kenya. It's very different. It's very loud. It's very exuberant. So at one point in the middle of this worship service, which it probably lasted over two hours, at one point in the middle of this worship service, everyone began to clear out all the chairs from the middle of the sanctuary. We had no idea what was going on. So we just helped stack chairs, push them off to the side. After everything was cleared out, a small group of men and a small group of women went onto the stage in the sanctuary. The men all lined up shoulder to shoulder, and the women all kind of clustered together here in the corner with their microphones. The women all started to sing, sing loudly, sing with praise and joy. And then the women in the congregation in the sanctuary, they began to follow suit. They began to sing in rhythm with these women. And as the women sang, the men on the stage began to dance in place. Just right there in place, just put a foot out, put a foot back. And the men in the sanctuary followed. And so we're looking around, I'm like, okay, we can do this. I can do my little foot forward, my little foot backward. You know, we're smiling. And then the women on the stage, they began to increase their speed and their volume. And their joy began to just, just uh, fill the room with their song. What next I've never seen before, and I don't know if I'll ever see again, but all the men on the stage began to high kick in place like they were drum majors leading a marching band. And they were running in place, and those legs were going as high as you can imagine. And then all the men in the sanctuary began to follow suit. And so I'm just looking around. I'm still doing my little, I'm like, well, we've stepped it up a notch here. What am I going to do? You know, that's... that's feels a little silly, but what I saw on their face was pure joy, pure gladness for the Lord. And so I was like, I'm going to do it. I will never get another chance to do this. And I just started high-stepping in place, and they started looking at me and nudging each other, and it just, it just created this wonderful experience of worshiping the Lord with just gladness, with exuberance. And it was something I will never, ever forget. And thankfully, I didn't pull a hamstring. It was fun. It was fun. As I reflect on that worship experience, and as I reflect on this psalm that we're in this morning, the heart of the matter of worship is not so much volume. It's not. It's not so much volume. It's not so much how energetic we are, because you can, you can fake that. You can the heart of the matter is whether or not we are adoring God. Is he the object of our adoration? Is he whom the one we behold and just say, you are beautiful. I love you. Thank you that you first loved me. And if he is, then our response to him can take many different forms. It can. The question is, is he who we are adoring? And if so, are we responding to him with a measure of exuberance, with a measure of enthusiasm, with, with vitality and vigor? And so here, I, I have no plans of clearing out 
the chairs. I, I don't anticipate when Ross gets back that he's going to think that's a great idea for us to high step in place. But what I do want you to do is I, I want you to, to feel the freedom not to hold back in worshiping the Lord. For most of us, that's just simply sing loud. Sing your hearts out. And I am a terrible singer. God did not give me that gift. But I love the Lord because of his great love for me. And so, so if you feel comfortable, raise your hands. Worship him with gladness, with, with all the joy that we as believers can experience because of his great love for us in Christ. So we have so much, so much to be joyful for. We do. We have so much to be thankful for. And we, we get to especially experience that as we gather as a body of believers. So look with me now in verse 3 as our psalmist begins to lay out some of the reasons why. What's the story behind this, this instruction to make a joyful noise? And what we're going to see in verse 3 is he's our creator. He's our creator. The Lord made us. So read with me verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the Lord, Yahweh, he's the one true God. He's the creator of all things. Now, Augustine, he's one of the, the church fathers and one of the most prolific writers in church history. His thoughts impact us today. He had something to say about this reality of God being our creator and its significance in his own spiritual journey. Listen as I read to you from his book called Confessions. Confessions is his personal account of his search for truth before he was a believer, his search for truth, which eventually led him to Jesus. In that quest, he had this to say about his search for God by way of observing the creator's creation. Listen as I read. But what is my God? I put my question to the earth. It answered, I am not God. And all things on earth declared the same. I asked the sea and the chasms of the deep and the living things that creep in them. But they answered, we are not your God. Seek what is above us, they said. So I spoke to the winds that blow and the whole air and all that lives in it replied the same. I am not God. I asked the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars, but they told me, neither are we the God whom you seek. I spoke to all the things that are above me, all that can be admitted by the door of the senses. And I asked, since you are not my God, tell me about him. Tell me something about my God. Clear and loud, they all answered, God is he who made us. August, uh, Augustine went on to write, I ask these questions simply by gazing at these things, and their beauty was all the answer they gave. What Augustine or Augustine and our psalmist are saying is all things were made by the creator, the one true God. And he created all things in such a way that they are bathed in his beauty. They are bathed in his beauty in order to draw us to himself and to worship him. So for, for some of us, if you're like myself, maybe you find it easier 
to worship God when you step out into his creation. I know I often go for walks up to the pond uh, at the end of our church property here just to get away from whatever it is that I'm pondering or working on and to just be surrounded by the beauty of the creator's creation. And more often than not, what ends up happening in my life is gazing upon the beauty of the creator's creation. It leads me to reflect upon his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his majesty. And upon reflecting on that, I go to him with my burdens, with whatever it is that's been troubling me, and I cast them on him. And when I experience the weight of that burden off my shoulders, and I trust him with whatever it is that's been holding me down, I instinctively worship. It could just be a very simple but sincere thank you. Thank you. You are good. You are faithful. You are powerful. You care for me. He's our creator. That's the first reason our psalmist is giving us in worshiping him with gladness, with joy. Moving on, our psalmist doesn't only talk about God as our creator in verse 3. Moving in verse 3, the, the first line, the first two lines have to do with him being creator. But in the second line of verse 3, and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He begins to shift the focus from God being our creator, the creator of all things, to him being the redeemer of his people. Those who have trusted in his son for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, for the nation of Israel, becoming God's people looks back at the Exodus event when the Lord redeemed them from bondage in Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a covenant with them, making them, that nation, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. So in the Old Testament, this idea of being his people, the sheep of his pasture, was very clear because they lived in an agrarian society. The message was, if we're the sheep, the Lord is the shepherd. Therefore, as the shepherd, it's his responsibility to provide the direction, the guidance, and the care we need. The direction, the guidance, and the care that they needed as his people, his sheep. It also implied that they would listen to his voice. Sheep, both then and now, are defenseless creatures. Oh man, they're so defenseless. They were not created by God to be alone or fend for themselves. In fact, their only real strength is their herders. Strong herding instinct. They stick together. They require an outside source of care. Now, I know this because I grew up the grandson of a sheep rancher. And so during spring break, fall break, we would go and we would, we would lend a hand. Uh, marking the lambs, shearing, whatever it is my grandfather needed us to do. Very early on, I learned that sheep have as many, if not more, vulnerabilities than they do strengths. They are susceptible to just about anything. They, they, they cannot eat a certain flower that's everywhere, 
called, um, well, God, I'm blanking on it, called uh, uh, ragweed. It's beautiful. Um, bitterweed, excuse me. It's a beautiful yellow flower that my daughters like to pick, but it has a toxin in it. And if they eat it, which they do, they eat it, it makes them very sick and it can kill them. So they're susceptible from things as small as a toxin in a beautiful flower, which they eat, to predators as large as coyotes, but they're also susceptible to predators as small as a crow. They are vulnerable to crows. So they have all kinds of vulnerabilities, from coyotes to crows. They're so vulnerable that they get hurt by other prey. It is not uncommon that they're grazing a little too close to a porcupine and they get a face full of porcupine quills that we then have to pull out. And that's a nice Sunday morning picture, isn't it? My point is they need an outside source of care, of guidance, and of direction. They need a shepherd. And so do we as God's people. We need a shepherd as we live in this fallen, broken world world. So the image of God as the shepherd of his people, it extends to us today through Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd of God's people. He's the shepherd over the church. Anyone who's trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Jesus is your shepherd, our shepherd. He, in what ways though, is my question, in what ways does Jesus being our shepherd motivate us to joyful, thankful hearts. If that's true, what specifically has our Good Shepherd done for us that we can reflect on on Sunday morning, leading us to a heart filled with joy and gladness and gratitude and make a joyful noise to Him, our Lord, the Good Shepherd? So if you get a chance, read John chapter 10. I'm going to give you two reasons from John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd, why? We have so much to be joyful for and thankful for. From John chapter 10, the two facets I want to mention is first, our good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He died for the sheep. He was not just a prophet who taught us how to live. He's our redeemer who died in our place, bearing our guilt before a holy God so that we might become righteous in him. So that we might become God's people simply by believing upon Jesus alone. Secondly, by his death and through his resurrection, he has provided for all of his people, those who have trusted in him, with life, abundant life. This concept of flourishing that God intended all creation to have before Adam sinned, before the world broke. This, this flourishing it's the fullness and richness of fellowship with God under His favor and His blessing. And it's in fellowship with other believers too. Now we experience this in part now, but we will not receive the fullness of this until Christ returns. And so as New Testament believers, we're able to look at our psalm today and understand the fullness of what it means that God in Christ is our shepherd in short, he has taken care of our biggest problem. The biggest problem you could possibly imagine. Separation from God for all eternity. 
our shepherd has already taken care of. And in, as we read this psalm, our Redeemer, that's why we, we gather and we praise Him with gladness and, and thankfulness. So this reality, it motivates us to worship. Now I realize some of us, as I've said, have deep wounds that we're, we're presently just working through or, or healing from or smack dab in the middle of and don't have necessarily a, a chart forward that's, that's fine. That's even normal. That's part of being a person. I told you I'm not going to try to spiritualize away your pain. But as we preach through the Psalms, what, what I do want to mention is if this Psalm, a Psalm of praise, is not what you need this morning because of your pain, your hurt, the book of Psalms as a collection has what's called Psalms of Lament. Psalms which say, your pain is real. Your circumstances, they are hard. Go to God with that. Cry out to Him and say, why, God? How much longer, God? Give Him the fullness of the weight of your emotions, your, your sadness, your disappointment, your pain, your distress, your grief. Give them to Him. Draw near to him in that pain. And he will draw near to you. So as his child, as sheep, we draw near to the shepherd. Whether it's with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. Or it's with distress, pain and grief. And as our shepherd, he will draw near to you. He will. He loves you. Oh my goodness, does Jesus love you. Let's jump now to our next verse. We've seen the Creator. We've seen the Redeemer. Read with me verse 4 where we see a second call to worship. This call to worship in verse 4 has a special focus on thanksgiving. So we've seen a call for joy. Now we're going to see a call for thanksgiving. Read with me verse 4. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. So in the Old Testament, what we see here, these words, gates and courts. In the Old Testament, it was required for worshipers to come to Jerusalem, specifically to the temple, to offer their sacrifices. And the men were required to go three times a year for certain festivals. Now in the New Testament, believers are scattered around the world. Praise God for that. But just because we're scattered doesn't mean God wants us to worship in isolation. He still calls us to gather regularly as a community, which we primarily do on Sunday morning for worship, biblical instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and to serve one another. Why? What's the significance? If we're scattered, if the, there is no more temple, if the church is the temple, why does God want us to gather? What's What's the significance, the meaning behind that? We are a family. We are a family. And as a family, we need each other. You need one another. I need you. We just cannot do this Christian life apart from each other. So earlier this week, my wife showed me a very funny post by one of her old professors in seminary. I chuckled. 
But then I noticed that my wife was friends with another one of our professors at seminary. So I clicked on his Facebook uh, site and began reading some of his posts. He, he's a pretty funny guy. Uh, I just, I like him. I learned a lot from him and I just wanted to see what he was up to. Well, one of the posts that he, he wrote really caught my attention. It said, if participation in the life of your church isn't part of your spiritual growth, you're doing it wrong. If participation in the life of your church isn't part of your, your plan for spiritual growth, you're doing it wrong. I, I thought that was great. I thought that was really well said. We need each other. We need each other. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, then you need to gather with God's people. In the context of our psalm, as we gather, as we gather, we experience in concrete, tangible ways God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's care. Let me give you an example. On more than one occasion, I've been out in the foyer and I have seen people just begin to spontaneously pray for others. Now, there was a whole conversation beforehand, and someone in that conversation opened up about something that was going on in their life. And God's people responded with encouragement, with love, with prayer. And that builds us up. That gives us concrete, tangible reasons why we are to praise God and worship Him with thanksgiving because of each other. That we're not doing this Christian life in this fallen, broken world apart. And so as we wrap up this psalm, let's read the final verse. We've seen God as our creator, our redeemer. We've seen our psalmist call us to worship with joy and gladness and to worship with thanksgiving. Let's look at this final verse here where our psalmist lays out the final reason why we are to worship God with joyful, thankful hearts. He's our sustainer. He is our sustainer. Read with me verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Now in this verse, the Lord, you can see He's described as good, with steadfast love and faithfulness. Good, steadfast love, faithfulness. Each of these attributes is somewhat related to one another. God's goodness is His absolute moral purity. There's no shadow or shifting with God. He is who He is. He is morally pure, completely untouched and unstained by evil. He is good. His steadfast love, it can often be translated as loyal love. And it has this idea built into it that the relationship you have with him is eternal. And it is on solid ground. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Because you are in his son. You belong to him. His goodness and his graciousness, everything about the way God views you is unchanging. As his child, you're in his family. His faithfulness, he is purely trustworthy, purely trustworthy. God does not merely embody these qualities. These are not some things about God that he 
displays or relates to us through. He actually is these qualities. He is good. He is love. He is faithful. Bringing all this together, syntactically, our, our psalmist actually bases the majority of his argument, why we worship God with joy and thanksgiving on this verse, verse 5. That we can, we can build our entire lives around the reality of who God is. He is the one who sustains every facet of our lives, spiritually and physically. And he'll do so for all eternity if you've trusted in his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. His faithfulness will never, ever shift. So his unchanging faithfulness, his sheer love for us and his son, just simply reflecting on these realities, the truthfulness of who God is, the security you have in a relationship with him through his son is to lead us to worship with joy and thanksgiving. So in sum, we see that our, our post-it note message, what our psalmist is calling us to do, is worship the Lord with joy and thanksgiving. And the story behind that, the why, is he's our creator. All things bright and beautiful all creatures, great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. He saw us dead in our sins and didn't leave us there. Didn't allow that chasm, that separation that we were born into apart from him be the end of our story. He sent his son to bear the penalty that we deserve as guilty sinners so that we might be redeemed because of Christ's death and resurrection and become His, washed, clean, forgiven, given the gift of eternal life, that flourishing that we all crave and that we experience now in part through the gift of eternal life, but we will experience in full when the Lord returns for all eternity. Our biggest problem has already been taken care of. Praise God. And he's our sustainer. You can build your entire life around who God is and he will never disappoint you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You belong to him and his son. He is holding you for all eternity in the palm of his hands. That's why we praise and worship God, the Lord, with joyful, thankful hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you through your Son, and we praise you for your Son. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Sustainer. Father, we love you. Thank you that you first loved us in your Son. I pray for each and every one of us. May we be a worshiping body. May we be worshiping people. I pray that you would lead us to have a mind that reflects upon the reality of who you are, your goodness, your love, and your faithfulness. And that that would stir in our hearts adoration. And that we would, we would shout for joy. That our hearts would be thankful. 
And so, Lord, we do love you. We thank you. We pray your blessing upon us. Thank you that we are blessed in Christ. I pray that you would use us throughout this week, that there would be something about us that others see because we know you and that you would use us, your creatures, your, your trophies to draw more people to you and your son. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd rise to your feet, we'll dismiss with the benediction. And I would love to see you again next week as we continue our journey in the Psalms. Go with confidence, knowing that you as an image bearer of God are beautiful. And if in Christ you have been redeemed, given the gift of eternal life, and that you have much to be joyful for and thankful for, because God's got you. He's your sustainer. You can count on him. Amen.